open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, I had originally intended to preach eight sermons from Ephesians. I have never preached through the book of Ephesians before, but I got done, and I realized there's still more to say. So I've got three more messages. You might call this series three more things that Branch wanted to say after he got done preaching through Ephesians. So that's what we can call this. But today we're going to talk about God's grace in the workplace, a title I borrowed from Adrian Rogers. So that makes it doubly good. Ephesians 4.28 says this, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who is in need. Now, if you have your Bible or if it's on your phone, would you scoot over to Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 5 through 9. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. God's grace in the workplace. Work can be frustrating. And the degree to which all of us get irritated at work is seen in the popularity of two different songs from two very different genres, both of them uh, are going to reflect my age, and some of you young folks may not know these songs. But one song which reflects our frustration with work was in 1983 by a guy named Todd Rungan called Bang on the Drum All Day. Have any of you heard this song? In the song, he says, every day when I get home from work, I feel so frustrated. The boss is a jerk. And I get my sticks and go out to the shed, and I pound on the drum like it was my boss's head because I don't want to work. I want to bang on the drum all day. Do you all know that? Have you heard that? Some of you felt that way. Some of you uh, know exactly you, what I'm talking about. Some of you are the cause that people want to go to the drum and, uh, shed and bang on the drum. But 1977, a man named Donald Eugene Lytle, better known by his stage name, Johnny Paycheck, recorded a song which was actually written by David Allen Coe, which should tell you a lot about those two, Johnny Paycheck and David Allen Coe coming together. If you know either, anything about either of those guys, you know it's going to be something. Well, David Allen Coe wrote it, but Johnny Paycheck made it famous, and the song is, you all know it, take this job and shove it. Yes, and many of us have felt that way on many different days. Some of you are shocked that at historical Emmanuel Baptist Church, Johnny Paycheck was just quoted in the pulpit, but it happened. And these two songs, though, reflect the degree in some of our attitude about work. The theme of the book of Ephesians is we are saved by grace. And if we are saved by grace and Jesus Christ has changed our heart and made us into a new person, one of the first places where evidence of our new life should be seen at is when we are at work, when we're working. God's grace transforms every area of our lives, including our work ethics, and we can experience God's grace in the workplace. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, and then chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, teaches us that the core element of a Christian's work ethic, 
teaches us the core element of a Christian's work ethic. From this, we can learn to achieve excellence in this area of our life and experience God's grace in the workplace. Now, I want to remind you, these verses I just read are part of a larger textual unit. The second half of Ephesians, Paul really spends most of his time talking about ethics. He starts in the first half of Ephesians talking about theology. He moves to ethics. And he's giving the characteristics of what it looks like not to live for the world, but to live for Jesus. And that shows up in how we work. And so today we're going to talk about God's grace in the workplace. We're going to find five principles for how we can achieve excellence for God in the workplace. And then we're going to see five points of application at the end. Let's move forward and see what it says. First of all, if we're going to find God's grace in the workplace, we have to abandon the attitude that we are owed something for nothing. Would you look at verse 28? He who steals must steal no longer. That's an interesting way to uh, open a discussion about work. But the first thing Paul says before he talks about our work ethic is he talks about not stealing. When someone steals, they are attempting to generate revenue without working. When a person steals, he or she takes property owned by another person for which that person earned the right to own that property via work. And essentially in stealing, a person is relying on someone else to generate revenue. You know the Ten Commandments. The Eighth Commandment is thou shalt not, thou shalt not steal. On Mount Sinai, God said it. There are lots of things that lead someone to steal, but one is the attitude that I deserve what someone else has, and I want something for nothing. And I have to be honest with you, the state governments don't really help you in this attitude. In fact, they reinforce it. One way the state reinforces this attitude among the citizens is through the Powerball, the Powerball. Let me go ahead and tell you, you're not going to win. I can make that prediction pretty safely. But what the state does is the state comes along and tells you, spend a few dollars on this ticket, and you just might wind up with unbelievable, unbelievable unfathomable riches uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, which probably boils down to about $22.17 after taxes. But nonetheless, it's, you, they want you to play the Powerball. And the temptation is you spend a little money on this ticket and you get something for basically nothing. So the state is kind of reinforcing that and driving it home. And so what I want you, I want you to succeed. God wants you to succeed and have victory in every area of your life. And for that to happen, we have to get rid of this attitude. We're going to get something for nothing. One of the basic ideas that all of us need to grasp is there is no free lunch. Somebody always pays for lunch. Sometimes you've been invited to some meeting and they say there's a free lunch. Well, it's not really free. It just means someone else paid for it. But there's no free lunch. Somebody always pays for lunch. Recent years, I've heard a lot of young people, listen, if you don't know this, the cost of higher education, and I'm a professor, so I'm part of the problem, but the cost of higher education has gone up 1,150% 1 since 1979. And all of us as parents know that, right? You've got kids going to college, we're walking around and, uh, with holes in our shoes and our pants are worn out because we're trying to pay tuition. But the point is... Out of frustration for that, one, a lot of people have said, well, let's just change it where everybody gets free tuition. I want you to listen. There's no such thing as free tuition. 
it, it, somebody's always going to pay for the tuition. Either the parents are going to pay for it or the taxpayers are going to pay for it. But there's no free lunch. But a lot of this chatter about free tuition is really just this mindset, well, I want something for nothing. And there's no free lunch. If you want to move forward with Jesus, you have to abandon the idea that we are owed something for nothing, that somehow the world owes us something. And let me be very clear, we're not really owed anything. What we, what we are owed when it comes to business is what we earn. So we have to abandon the idea that we're owed something for nothing. Sometimes we attempt to justify not reporting income to the government. And I just want to let you know that's stealing. And Paul says, he who steals, let him steal no longer. Here's what I mean. People get frustrated with the government and they say, well, they tax me too much. Or they say that when they do tax me, they spend the money on things that are unwise. And so I'm not going to report all my income. I want you to understand, some of the most irritating verses in the Bible you will ever read are Romans chapter 13, verses 6 through 7. But it is the inspired and errant word of God. And you know what it says? Pay your taxes. And so we're supposed to report income. And if we don't report income and we don't pay taxes on that income, that's stealing. You say, yeah, but the government gets too much of my money. I, there, one time there was a businessman in Washington, D.C., looked like a businessman, walking through the street. A crook came up behind him, stuck a gun in his back and said, don't panic, but right now I want you to give me all your money. And the guy put up his hands and said, you can't do this. I'm a congressman in the United States uh, House of Representatives. To which the thief said, okay, fine, don't give me all your money. Give me all my money, right? So that's... So I understand you may feel that way about government. I understand the frustration. Our job as Christians is to act with integrity on what we know to be right. My friend Rodney Harrison has just co-authored a book. He teaches with me at the seminary called Confessions of a Church Felon. Interesting title, Confessions of a Church Felon. He and a guy named Glenn Miller did exp expansive research on people who embezzled money from churches. And there's actually a triangle of fraud that leads people to that. But listen carefully. One part, a common theme among people who embezzle money from churches is this. They said, I deserved it. I'm underappreciated. And so there's a reason why I had to embezzle all this money from the church. To put it more on a personal level, I have personally known three Baptist laymen in my life who were indicted, convicted, and sentenced for embezzling hundreds of thousands, in one case millions of dollars from companies for who they worked. In every case, those men still argued to the very end, but I was unappreciated. I deserved it. Listen. Drop the attitude that we're owed something for nothing. As Christians, we act with integrity in the workplace. Drop the attitude that we're owed something for nothing. We aren't owed anything. We agree to a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. Abandoning the idea you're owed something for nothing transforms you from a victim who's always blaming everybody else for your situation into a victor whom Jesus Christ can make into a champion. And there's some of you this morning, you've been carrying the victim card all your life. 
Listen, Jesus doesn't want you to live your life as a victim. Jesus wants you to live your life in victory, where you are an overcomer, where you are a champion for Christ. Man, don't you want that? You tired of, tired of living in defeat? I don't want you to live in defeat. God doesn't want you to live in defeat. Let's get over that negative attitude. That really leads to the second point, and it's really this. Embrace the responsibility to work hard regardless of your job. So we have an interesting text here. He starts out in verse 28 and he says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Interesting, that word labor there in the text is used elsewhere in the Bible to describe the disciples fishing all night. They're laboring all night and they're exhausted and tired. Performing with our hands, the idea is it's something that we do individually. Now, it's really symbolic. We've known folks who were physically unable to do manual labor, but they still worked. They used their mind, and they used their initiative to provide for themselves. But the point is that we often think of work as evil. But you need to read your Bible again if you think of the work as evil. If you think work is evil, work is not evil. Read Genesis chapter 2. God made a garden, God made Adam, and he placed Adam in the garden. And there's something very interesting in Genesis 2. It's in Genesis 2:15 it says that God placed Adam in the garden of Eden and I'm quoting directly from the book of Genesis, quote to work and cultivate it. Adam was assigned work to do before the fall. Genesis 3, the fall comes in and sin. Listen, work is not a result of the fall. Work was always part of God's design for us. Ladies, if I have any single ladies here, you need to listen very, very carefully to a point of application that Pastor Branch is about to make for you. I have two daughters. I've tried to drive this point home to my daughters. If you will notice, God made Adam first and Eve second, right? Ladies, you listening? All right, and if you'll notice, Adam was in the garden and God had assigned him to cultivate the garden before he ever met Eve. Are you tracking with this? Listen, Adam had a J-O-B before he met E-V-E. You understand what I'm saying? He had a J-O-B. Uh, my deepest fear in life is that one of my daughters brings home a philosophy major in love. You know what that means? We're going to remodel the basement because they're moving in. That's what that means. I, Give me a young man who's a welder any day, I promise you. So he has a J-O-B. Ladies, that's what you want to look for. One time, Lisa and I were doing premarital counseling with a couple, Nate and Megan. And she was this gorgeous young lady, and, and Nate is uh, not gorgeous. But he'd married way, he was going way over his head. He was hitting out of his league. And uh, he's a sweet guy, and I love him, serving the Lord today. But they're sitting at our kitchen table. And one of the things we do is we make young couples prepare a budget in premarital counseling. So they just want to talk about love and romance, and we want to talk about a budget. So they came back one week for their, I think it was their fourth meeting. They had their budget with them, and they were so excited about their budget. Now, I need to give you some background. As best as we could discern, Megan was funding this dating relationship. She had a job, and Nate was just kind of floating along and didn't have... A, a job, but he's floating along. And so um, we're at our table and they, we start working through them with their budget and they hadn't really looked at all the expenses. We said, well, have you thought about car payments? Have you thought about uh, insurance for your automobile? Have you thought about health insurance? Have you thought about how much it's going to cost to buy groceries every week? Have you thought about your rent? And he was sitting next to me 
and his head was in his hands, and he started running his fingers through his hair. The color drained from his face. He was as white as a ghost, and he was just looking, and I could see the jugular vein pumping out like this, and after about 30 minutes of working on his, on his budget, he pushed his chair back from my table in my kitchen, threw his hands up in the air, and said, I've got to get a job. And I said, we have made progress tonight, I'm telling you. That really happened. Work hard with your own hands. I'm so grateful for my parents teaching me how to work. When I was about seven or eight years old, my dad made contact with a company on Fulton Industrial Boulevard down in Atlanta. And we drove an old 64 Chevrolet pickup truck with cattle rails. And we picked up 16 55-gallon drums. We strapped them down, got them on the back of the truck. I lived out in the country. I know this sounds weird. People used to burn their own trash. And I put an my parents took me up to um, the Dallas New Era newspaper, a little local newspaper. We paid $2 a piece for those drums, $32. And I put an advertisement in the paper, 55-gallon drums, $6. Call Allen, 944-3412. And I sold all 16 of those drums. But you see what my dad was teaching me? My dad was teaching me how to make money. I cut grass as a teenager and I always did my very, very best. And I learned very quickly. People formed opinions about me by the way that the yard looked when I was done with the job. You understand what I'm saying? They formed opinions about me. Some of you, listen, you're driving a nail. You're hanging sheetrock. You're laying block. People form opinions about you when you're done with the job. Don't ever be ashamed of what your job is. Do it your best. There is no shame in a job that's money really honestly earned. Listen, if you are cooking pizzas for a living, thank God for you. I'm serious. Thank God for you. How would church youth group survive without you? But the point being... Thank God for people. And if someone comes up to you and says, well, what do you do for a living? You look them right in the face and say, I cook pizzas for a living. You come to my store, I'm going to make you the best pizza you've had in years. There is no shame in any job that's well done, that's honest and earnest and sincere. Take pride in your work. Do it for the glory of God. And that really has to remind you, though, that none of us start out on top in business. We always start at the bottom and work our way up. There was a young man that uh, had graduated with his engineering degree from college. His father was a wealthy mine owner with several mines scattered across the western United States. So the young man had finished his college with his engineering degree and he came into his dad's office and he said, Dad, I've got my diploma. I've got my engineering degree. I want to go to work for you. He said, great, son. I'm going to send you down in the mine. I've got some of my union guys are going to show you this, the business from the ground up. They're going to show you how they drill, how the safety procedures. I want you to go down in the mine with those men, and I want you to learn it from the ground up. He said, but, Dad, I've got my diploma. I don't want to start down in the mine. I want to run a mine. He said, son, you don't know how yet. He said, but, Dad, I've got my diploma. He said, son, you, you really don't know what you're asking for. He said, Dad, I've got my diploma. And he said, I've got my, three or four times he's driving home I've got my diploma I've got my diploma I don't want to work in the mine I want to run a mine so his dad said fine I'm going to send you off to one of my mines in another area of the country and I'm going to let you run my mine with you and your diploma so he goes off and a couple of weeks later he sends his dad an email dad water is seeping into the mine what do I do dad doesn't answer a couple of days later, he sends his dad a text. He says, Dad, more water is seeping into the mine. A hole has developed, and I don't know what to do. Dad doesn't answer. 
He sends his dad another email and he calls and leaves him a voice message and says, Dad, water is pouring into the mine. There's a hole here and I don't know what to do. His dad doesn't answer. Finally, he FaceTimes his dad and his dad answers. He's looking at him on his cell phone and he says, Dad, Dad, I don't know what to do. There's a hole in the mine. Water is pouring in. What do I do? And his dad said, stuff your diploma in the hole. That's what his dad said. Some of you have worked with that guy before, right? Listen, none of us know everything when we're starting out. One of the great challenges Lisa and I see in our counseling with young couples is young couples, when they first get married in this generation right now, are wanting to have the same level of wealth and prosperity their parents had after 25 and 30 years of hard work. It never starts out that way. Listen, my first apartment was built in 1968. We moved in in 1988, and it looked like a Brady Bunch set gone bad. I mean, with all those earth tones, it was horrible. And we were grateful for it. None of us starts out on top, right? You have to have the right attitude. Embrace the responsibility to work hard regardless of the job. Third, even earn income to share with others. And the reason we work is not just to gather stuff. I am not against anybody setting a goal for something you'd like to achieve. Uh, some of you guys, your goal is to... Uh, Maybe pay off your house early. That's good. Maybe some of you guys are saving some money so you can pay cash for a cruise on your anniversary. And all the wives said, amen, right. So there's nothing wrong with those things. But we don't earn money just to get stuff. Notice what he says at the end of verse 28. So that, you're performing with his own hands what is good. So that, here's the purpose, he will have something to share with one who is in need. And by the way, the first needy people you need to be concerned about is your own family. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his own and especially of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We're supposed to work to provide for our families. But one of the great joys of earning money is we get to bless other people. I want to tell you a story. It happened about three months ago. It's absolutely true. I have a young lady in one of my classes. She is a champion for Christ. I mean, she's living for the Lord. Her, and I like her even more because her dad was an army chaplain, which means she's ranked very high in my book. And so I, I love JC. Well, she's working her way through college and paying her own way, wants to graduate debt-free. And she's working and paying her way through college. But a few months ago, she reached a point where she had enough money to pay tuition or she could pay rent, but she couldn't pay both. Got the picture? So J.C. is at her Sunday school class at her church. She didn't mention the dollar amount. She just said, hey, said to her Sunday school class, hey, guys, would you pray for me? I, I got enough money to pay rent. I got enough money to pay tuition. I can't do both, but I need God to provide. And Would you all pray for me? They, they did, and there was a sincere prayer offered in the Sunday school class for her. That afternoon, a member of that church came to her and said, the Lord has laid it on my heart to help you with your education and handed her an envelope. In that envelope was a check. This guy did not know how much money she needed. It was the exact amount she needed to pay her tuition. Let me remind you, one of the names of God in the Old Testament is Jehovah Jireh. Our God provides. He's a miracle working God. He knows what you needed. He's never early. He's never late. He's an on-time God. And listen, do you see what happened though? God used somebody else to be a blessing in her life. Isn't that a joy when you get to work and earn and then be a blessing and be the hands and feet of Jesus to somebody else? It's not just about us. It's to bless other people. Employees, here's our fourth principle. Employees, remember that ultimately you are accountable to Jesus for your work ethic. Look at chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Notice what it says. Slaves. Let me say a word about slaves. 
When we think of slaves here in the United States, we think of the antebellum South and how bad things were there. Slavery in the Roman Empire wasn't exactly like it was in the South. In the Southern United States, it was exploitation of one people based on ethnic hatred. Uh, the, the Romans, it wasn't like that. It was different. It, it varied greatly. Some of the slaves were treated very poorly. Some were treated like part of the family, some even being adopted into families. And in many cases, the master-slave relationship was much more like an employee-employer relationship, but it did vary greatly across the empire. But here's what I want to point out to you. Look at verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. In sincerity of your heart as to Christ, you're not just working for the company, you're working for Jesus. We're serving him. Just remember... That when we go to work, we represent Jesus Christ. Notice what it says again in verses 5 and 6. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. We're to work as for Christ, not by way of eye service, not just when people are looking at us as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Every time we go to work, we know whether the boss is looking or our employer is looking that Jesus is looking. We're giving our very best. Let me tell you how this became very real to me in the year 2001. I'd been a pastor in North Carolina for eight years, and God did a great work in the church. In July 16, 2001, I started as the vice president for student development at Midwestern Baptist Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. The school was about 40 years old at that time. And the school was in a world of hurt. The attendance and enrollment had dropped to a precipitously low state. And I took the job as vice president for student development. And I soon learned that that title, vice president for student development, was simply a title for a glorified student recruiter. Now, being a student recruiter as a job rates somewhere between septic tank clinging and uh, scrubbing toilets in a men's dorm somewhere. And I picked this up very quickly. And to make things worse, everyone's telling me the future of the school depends on you, but you've got the smallest part of the budget in the entire budget. And the guy for whom I was working was an unusually difficult person with whom to work. It was a challenge. And I hadn't sold my house in North Carolina And after about three or four months of this, I said, I didn't sign up for this, and I'm ready to go back home. I'm going to move back to my house in North Carolina, and I'm going to call it quits. I'm in a hotel room in Oklahoma City. I know I got some Gideons here. I forgot my Bible. God bless you. I was reading a Gideon Bible for my devotion in a hotel room in Oklahoma City. It's late October 2001. And I'd only been on this job for three or four months. I didn't like the way I was being treated. I didn't like the demands on me. I didn't like the person for whom I worked. I was just unhappy. And in the, I flipped open the Gideon's Bible in the back. It had all these things for advice about forgiveness, anxiety. See these verses for advice about family. See these verses. But it says something inter- interesting. For advice about business, read this. And it said, go read Colossians chapter 3 and read what it says there about business. Now, I had a Ph.D. in theology. I knew the Bible. Somehow I'd forgotten the verse. So I opened up that Bible in the hotel room to Colossians 3.23. Here's what it said. Whatever... You do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. And that struck me like a a lightning bolt from heaven. And suddenly I realized I was looking at this all wrong. I wasn't there working for men. I was there to work for Jesus. 
I was supposed to give my very best for Jesus, and I made a commitment in that room that night. If this school closes, and if the convention decides it's too small, we're going to shut it down. You haven't recruited enough students. They may do it, but they won't do it because I was lazy. And I'm going to give my 100%. And I served as the vice president of student development of that school for seven years, two weeks, and one day. Not that I was counting. And I, was, uh, I, re I resigned to just be a, a full-time professor, which I enjoy much more. But let me tell you what happened in those seven years, two weeks, and one day. Our full-time equivalents went from 254 to 438. It almost doubled. But a lot of this chatter about closing the school kind of died away. And in the 10 years since I've gotten out of that job, this seminary is now the fastest growing seminary in the United States. I rejoice with every victory of this current administration, the school I work for. And in my heart, it's so satisfying to think that work I did 17 and 16 and 15 years ago when no one was looking, but I was working and working and working help build some momentum that more talented and more gifted people were able to take and use to go onto levels and heights. Let me tell you, 17 years ago, no one ever dreamed the school I teach at would be the size it is today, the things that would be happening there today. I'm happy I had a small part of it. Let me tell you how it started. It started in a hotel room when I realized I'm not working for men, I'm working for Jesus. And I'm going to give my very best for Jesus. And I'm challenging you, you're not working for people. If you're a Christian, you're working for Jesus. And we always give Jesus us our very best. He's an awesome Lord. He gave the best for us. He gave his rich royal blood to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. How, how can we give anything but our very best in every endeavor? Not only do employees recognize that we're accountable to Jesus for a work ethic, but employers lead with integrity and fairness. Notice what it says in verse 9, and masters do the same things to them Give up threatening. We've all heard that phrase, beatings will continue until morale improves, right? Well, that's what he's talking about. Give up threatening. Know that both their master and yours is in heaven. There's no partiality with him. It's hard to be a boss or a supervisor, but we should always carry ourselves with dignity and integrity and treating people with fairness. There's so much more I want to say. Let me, let me move on to a close. Adrian Rogers has passed away several years ago, one of the most influential preachers in my life. He said, he gave four words of advice about the workplace. Here they are. There's a little rhyme. He said this, when, when, if we're going to succeed for Jesus in the workplace, first of all, as a Christian, don't brag. Don't brag to everybody we work with how holy we are. Listen, if we go in there like some sort of Pharisee bragging about how we don't do this and we don't do that and we don't go to this place and we're better than everybody else, it is going to make our coworkers want to vomit. They are not going to be drawn to Christ. Don't brag when you're at work. Don't nag. Sometimes we as Christians just give lost people grief about every word they say wrong or everything they do wrong, and we irritate and we nag and we nag. That's not what God calls us to do at work. We're not there to brag about how holy we are. We're not there to nag them about how unholy they are. Third, don't lag. Don't lay behind. Listen, we take the initiative that Christians, when we come to work, people know that's the hardest working woman, that's the hardest working guy that we have here. And then don't sag. One of the challenges is we work around people who are not Christians. It's easy to revert back to old patterns of behavior and old ways of thinking. We have to stay on our knees before the Lord Jesus. Don't sag down to their level. And then Lisa and I want to add one more. It's not in your guy, but we thought about this and we talked, we want to give you one more. Can we? Don't wag as in don't wag your tongue. Don't be a gossip at work. Come to work with a positive attitude, saying things that help people, encourage people. 
How do we pull all this together? I want to give an example from college football. And I know that we tease each other about teams. I'm really not, I'm just asking you to kind of lay aside all our rivalries we have about football. I want to tell you about an employer-employee relationship that worked the right way. It has to do with Mark Richt. As many of you know, I'm from Georgia. I love the Georgia Bulldogs. For 15 years, the University of Georgia was coached by an extremely fine Christian man, Mark Richt. He's now the head coach at the University of Miami, where he played quarterback when he was in college. But his first coaching job when he was done playing uh, college football was as a graduate assistant at Florida State University with Bobby Bowden. Some of you know who Coach Bowden was, a very famous coach, won a couple of national titles with Florida State. As it goes, Coach Rick started out as a graduate assistant, which is a very low-paying job, doesn't get a lot of recognition. And so what happened was a guy on the team had been tragically killed. It was awful. The guy was murdered. Just really a great tragedy, and everyone was quite distraught. Well, Coach Bowden called all his coaches and graduate assistants into room and said, he gave about a five-minute word, and he said, hey, listen, we don't know where this guy's at. Where He stepped off into eternity, and he started talking to those coaches about eternity, about heaven, about hell, about what happens when we die, and he gave a brief testimony to his faith in Jesus Christ about how Jesus Christ had forgiven him and changed his life and saved him. That's all he said. It was only just a few minutes. And then he said, now we've got to go encourage the players. And he coached them up on how to help the players. That Mark Richt was not a Christian. He said, I thought about that all night. All night long, I couldn't get those words out of my mind. The next day, he goes into Bobby Bowden's office and says, I want to talk. Will you tell me some more about this Jesus and forgiveness? And Coach Bobby Bowden led Mark Rick to Christ in his office. Here's what I want you to hear about that story. Coach, you know anything about coaching college football? That's a rough environment. And do you understand the power of what happened there? Coach Rick had worked with Coach Bowden. He'd seen him on sidelines when referees got the call wrong. He'd seen him when players had dropped the ball and lost the game or fumbled the ball and lost the game. He'd seen him in all those circumstances. And something about the way Coach Bowden carried himself as a coach validated his testimony so that when he stood in front of a room full of men after a great tragedy had just occurred and started talking about his faith in Jesus, none of them thought it was odd because why, the way he carried himself at work validated everything he said when his opportunity to witness came. Listen carefully. When we go to work, they pay us to do our job. And so they're not paying us to be evangelists. Our first responsibility is to do our job. But sooner or later, if you stay somewhere long enough, an opportunity the right time under the leadership of the Holy Spirit will come for you to give a testimony to Jesus Christ and listen carefully what we can all learn from Coach Bowden. When that opportunity comes and when we open our mouth and mention the name Jesus, the way we've carried ourselves on our job to that point should validate everything we say so that when we talk about Jesus, people say, I think he's telling the truth. Now listen carefully. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no man should boast. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. So having a good work ethic won't get you to heaven. But if you're saved, you should have a good work ethic. 
And even though we earn a living by what we do, we don't earn salvation by what we do. We are given salvation by what somebody else did. That's Jesus Christ. And Jesus was a carpenter. He worked with his hands in wood. And listen, he died for you with his hands in wood. And he shed his blood that you might be saved and you might be forgiven. Wherever you're at, wherever your life is at today, there's hope in the name of Jesus Christ at work, at home, and in every area of your life. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Brother Mark's going to come. Lisa's going to come. Listen carefully. I want to talk to two groups of people here. And you may be a Christian. You've trusted Christ for many years. But your attitude toward work has been all wrong. And maybe today you don't need to come forward, but in your heart, you need to make a commitment that I'm not working for man. I'm working for Jesus. And whatever I do, I'm going to give my best for Christ. <clears throat> you may be here and you've never believed on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I'm going to invite you to come forward and take me by the hand. Pastor Ryan is here. Pastor Chris is here. My wife, Lisa, and Nikki are here. If you'd like to know how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to come and We'll take time and share with you how you can be forgiven. Maybe you're here and you have never been baptized and be obedient to baptism in the way the Bible says. We invite you to come. Maybe you're here and you have thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And you need to join with us. You've been saved. You've been baptized. But you've not planted your life with this church. And the Lord's told you and you know this is where you need to unite with to invest in the city of Wichita with us, we invite you to come. Whatever your decision, you come. They're going to lead us in singing, and I want to pray, and as soon as I'm done praying, you come. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that we would carry ourselves with integrity and that when we talk about Jesus, the way we've carried ourselves at work would validate that testimony. And I pray for some people here today who've never believed on Jesus Christ. They've never trusted him. I pray they would trust what Jesus Christ did, his cross, his atonement. Father, I pray they'd be saved. And I pray for people who are struggling with being obedient to you in baptism. They've trusted you years ago, but help them be obedient and faithful in baptism. And those who need to unite with us as we reach Wichita for Christ, God, lead them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.